0: And it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This may uh, may look and sound familiar if you have been with us from the beginning of this series, Joshua and Generation Next. But in society where there were no refrigerators, And you ate mostly the same thing every day. Salt was used to prevent decay and to flavor food. And in both cases, eating it would make a person thirsty for more. And so we defined way, way back a few months ago, uh, a salty life like this. It's a different sort of life that stops decay and adds flavor to other lives. For anyone who has ever wanted to make a difference, to leave a legacy, to impact persons, to live a life that matters, something in you resounds with Jesus' description of salt to a decaying and flavorless world. Enter the book of Joshua, which preaches and has been preaching to us how in the midst of a new land, new people, new opportunities, God called Joshua and the people God asked them to lead, to be salt together. And specifically as it pertains to both Generation Next and to us, how can we be salt during a time of blessing? So in chapter 1, we looked at the character of God who coaches us up on the God-sized mission to be salt and light. And we talked about being prepared because you never know, while living a salty life, when you might encounter a hitchhiker like Rahab along the way who is primed and ready to enter into God's family. It's chapter 2, we talked about how to identify an authority and leader worth following. Along the way, Joshua chapter 3, we talked about intentionally making a record of God's grace to keep you motivated for salty living. talked about stones and milestones in Joshua chapter 4 about the importance of obedience and living a salty life and how obedience can be at first inefficient and inconvenient but eventually turns into joy as you trust and obey and keep on trusting and obeying Joshua 5 and 6 we talked about the role the community plays in salty living especially when secret sin enters into a community and how it makes waves across a community even if we recognize it or not Joshua chapter 7, almost there. We took a future glimpse of living salty lives together. High standard, even higher grace. And I'm going to stop the review here because as the curtain opens for the closing act in the book of Joshua, we find Joshua generation next back where they were in chapter 8. So turn with me, if you would, to Joshua 24. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Joshua chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And he summoned the elders and the heads of all the tribes and the judges and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. So... They have landed back in Shechem. That should remind us of something because that's where we were in chapter 8 some 20 years earlier for one here final nationwide worship service. Remember in chapter 8, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, natural amphitheater, people speaking God's word back to each other was a worship service. Here we are again. One final nationwide worship service at Shechem. No doubt, Joshua brings him to this special place of worship because he's 110 years old, and he recognizes this will be his last worship service. Love we'll to be around Joshua at this time. I mean, frankly, one because I don't know about you, but I love old people. <laughs> All right, I love old people. So if you are older and you are listening in to this to our podcast, we want you to come and be part of Sunrise. We want you to be here. If you, if you are old and you heard me say pods and all you can think of is the movie Cocoon, <laughs> I apologize for any alarm I'm causing you at this moment. You're like, I just don't get to make Cocoon references very often or show Wilford Brimley up on the screen, so that's a personal thing for me. Um, if, if I was 110 years old, like Joshua, having led people for 25 years, having led these people what would I wish for for my last worship service? I think I would wish for, like, you know, a favorite hymn, favorite Bible passage maybe to be preached on. I would want a few pats on the back, admittedly. I want to sit in my rocking chair and have one bring me my bowl of soup. That's what I'd want, my last worship service. 110 years old. Joshua, though, spends his last worship service, 110 years old, reminding this generation why they should stay salty. Number two, how they can stay salty. And then number three, we witness then who stays salty. And we're going to follow a similar roadmap this morning. But, but there's no glad handing in this last worship service or that emotional slideshow set to you know a Sarah McLaughlin ballad. None of this. Instead, with every last ounce of passion in his bones, Joshua delivers his stay salty sermon. And I love it. It is a great timely and relevant sermon he gives so we're just going to basically follow along with his sermon this morning first he talks about why they and by proxy we should stay salty see that here in verses 2 through 13 now first in any endeavor requiring sacrifice which staying salty for christ does any sacrifice for something larger perseverance requires a why You know what I mean? If you're going to do something big, it's going to take something out of you along the way. You're going to be asking that question: Why am I doing this again? Why does this matter? In a moment, Joshua is going to give us us and Generation Next a practical how, but first that would be fruitless without a why, so we would eventually give up. And the why Joshua gives us is God's saving in every grace. First of all. God reminds his people of his saving grace. Let's read verses 2 through 13 together. So Joshua at this worship service says to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took you, oh sorry, took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. And to Esau, I gave the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea, And when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites. You're bringing them out of, delivering them. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you. I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which was probably the fear of the Lord. This is mentioned a couple other times in Scripture, but it's probably just the fear of the Lord, not actual hornets. Hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your own bow. Examples of God's love made active through an undeserved Gift, undeserved deliverance, that is grace right there. God making his love active through an undeserved gift. And here we have saving grace. And of all these examples, and there are many here, what stood out to me was the first one, that was Abraham. Abraham stands out to me because, look back there at verse 2 and 3. Thus said the Lord God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. It's the only time we really hear this. In the Bible, and you can't dance around the fact that Abraham was an idolater. The father of the Jewish nation served idols. He was once an enemy of God. Everyone who would hear this later liked to think of Abraham, the father of their faith, as the grand sort of stately, godly man who was basically good and noble. He just needed a little help from God along the way. You know what I'm saying? Silver hair, gray beard. You know, you know the kind of look, right? Later, he would have a statue made of marble. No one liked to consider Abraham, former pagan worshiper, indulging in selfish pursuits, lusting after false gods. No one liked to think of Abraham that way. So much so that the Jewish people actually made this pseudo-pigraphical book called the Book of Jubilees, which pictures Abraham as a teenager detesting pagan worship and idolatry long before God knows him and calls him out of Ur. It was almost as if they made this book, which is not in the Bible, and in part of think they made this up to say, look, uh, Abraham was really always a godly person, always kind of a good guy. And most of us, friends, have these well-known, stately godly examples of people who love Jesus yeah, and had a couple minor sins along the way. Help them with. So Americans, for instance, have the great evangelist Billy Graham. Uh, Scots have uh, Eric Little, you know, the great the great runner and missionary to China of Chariots of Fire fame. Uh, the English have, this is an example, uh, Clive Staples Lewis. The Comanians have the not too long ago pioneer missionary to this island, James Elmsley. And the whole world, until recently especially the Catholic Church, had the tireless Mother Teresa of Calcutta. These stately, godly figures. No one wants to conjure up images of any of these people, right, indulging in self, secret sin, pride, but those would be realistic images. Because Paul says this in Titus chapter 3. He says, We too, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We we lived in malice and envy, being hated, hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. In other words, God didn't look down and say, you know what? They're doing pretty good. They just need a little little push, a little help along the way, a little boost. Paul says we. So if you look at that list and you think, well, that's never been me. Look, Paul says we. He means all the apostles. And I think by proxy all of us. I mean elsewhere in Ephesians 2, he says that all of us are by nature children of wrath. We all once all followed the ways of Satan. Come on, that's a little harsh, right? each of these noble examples of our generation, recent examples, had to be saved and rescued from specific sin in their life, specific rebellion. So Billy Graham, he had made another woman his idol. God saved him out of that. C.S. Lewis self-indulged in any beauty that brought him personal pleasure. God saved him out of that. Mother Teresa, well, you know, I'm just kidding. I don't know <laughs> that. That's I know it's, <laughs> it's terrible. Um, not not really, but you know what? She's but she spoke about her own self-reliance in even starker terms than a drunkard. She knew how low Christ came to save her. There's at least one person I know here this morning who believes themselves a Christian but cannot, cannot testify to the specific sin, the specific condition from which Jesus saved them. They cannot tell you how many persons who I've met with over the years who claim that they don't have much of a story or testimony. Almost every time I get together with people for the first time, I ask them their story. And sometimes people say, well, you know, I don't really have a story. I understand. But the more I hear this, I also worry it's because you might not actually know what Jesus saved you from. You may not have ever identified what Jesus has saved you from, the condition in which you were when Jesus saved you. John 5, 24, it says this, that whoever hears my word, Jesus says, whoever hears my word and trust him who sent me can give eternal life. That person does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, the condition you were in was death. Death takes a lot of forms. Decay takes a lot of forms, specifically in each of our lives. But make no mistake, friends, it's death. So each of us should have a testimony. We can look back on This is all part of the why. You've got to look back and be able to see, God has delivered me from something awful into something great. And each of us should have a testimony in which you identify what you have been saved from. So right now, where you're sitting, we have pins in these chair pockets. Take a moment. You got, all came in with a bulletin. You should have been handed one. Grab a pen. Take a moment. And write down what Jesus has saved you from, specifically. I'm going to give you some examples to consider. For as it, it might be along with Paul. You've been saved from foolishness, disobedience, deception, enslavement. Maybe to an idol or to an addiction, hatred. Maybe you've been saved from despair, you've been saved from self-indulgence, the sense of consumerism that penetrates our society. Maybe you've been saved from persistent rebellion. And if you feel like the moment I've mentioned this before that you know you emerged from the womb, the doctor slapping you, you said, "Hallelujah," which that does not happen, you've not been a Christian from birth. Maybe you have to write, maybe, maybe you've been saved early on at an early age from the belief that your good works could save you. A lot of wee ones grow up in the church believing that. That what you do can be good enough. Maybe you were saved early on from thinking, you know, I can run my own life and do fine. Maybe that's what Jesus saved you from. But if you can't really write down right now, if you can't really identify what you were saved from, I've got to ask the question, are you really sure it's a Savior that you've trusted? I don't wish to scare you, but some of us need scaring every once in a while. If you don't have a testimony, it might be because you genuinely don't trust Jesus has saved you from anything real that would have led first to your destruction and ultimately to your eternal death. If and when you do, you begin to recall how far how long, how wide is Jesus' saving love for you? The hand that extended down to pull you up to life. You think on it, you recall it, it gives you a reason to carry on in living for him. So that when people do take notice, it does affect them and it does leave them wanting more. But you've got to think of where you've been saved from. Abraham was an idolater. So first saving grace and then very quickly He gives them another reason, every grace. Verse 13, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, cities you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards you did not plant. This is a great example of the type of blessing that can flow forth from Jesus' saving grace. right? Giving us things, blessing us in the way he wants to bless us. Sometimes that is with good food. And that is with a place to live and a roof over our heads. But again, the relevancy here of our original question is highlighted. How can you and I be salt during a time of blessing? Did you see that list? We are gradually lulled into the deception that every grace is kind of normal. And you can see that happening here with Generation Next, right? Oh, it's just normal to eat of the fruit at the place I live. It's normal to have, a, you know, land to live on and a roof over my heads. You know, it's, it's normal. It's every person's right. You know how you can be lulled into that idea, that belief? Land ownership, pursuit of wealth, getting groceries that you neither raised nor grew. It's just kind of something you do. And it's so hard to say salty, to question what's normal, to go against these subtly assumed goals of the wealthy and the powerful. That's where we live. So Joshua, what he does, and this is so cool, he, he lays out these four, what I found, very practical strategies for how we can stay salty in the midst of such blessing. We'll spend most of our time here. Now therefore, here's the first strategy, by the way. Now now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether... The gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. You can imagine, first of all, their reaction to this. Wait a minute, is there only two options? <laughs> Maybe three options, possibly four if you count the Egypt gods you mentioned earlier. you got Yahweh, the gods of Mesopotamia, the current gods among the people we live, are Egypt. Is that it? Like, I've got to serve gods or the God? Can I just kind of just live my life, not really worship anything, just sort of live how I'm living? Maybe, maybe I'll just take a break from God for a while. Oh, but Joshua immediately encourages what sincerity right in that first verse. And then he's on to something made explicit in the New Testament. If you're not worshiping Yahweh, you are worshiping another God. Whether it's money, pleasure, acceptance, admiration, You live for something else if you do not live for God. Call it what you will, it is another God or an idol. Romans 1 makes it clear that we are all worshipers of something. Romans 6 states that you are a slave either on one side of the tracks or the other. You're either a slave to sin, Romans 6 says, or you're a slave to righteousness. You get less choices in Romans 6. It's like, great, that's it. Paul says, but let's be clear, you're all slaves. Whose slave will you be? Paul goes so far as to call some idolatry demonic. He calls some idolatry demonic, 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Timothy 4. Whoa. So, yeah, worshiping something other than God can be, putting something else, number one, other than God can even be demonic? That is harsh. Jesus takes it further, or at least as far. He says, Luke eleven twenty three. he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutral in life, friends. And Joshua's on to this. There is no day where you just coast for Jesus, right? Where you just kind of go in cruise control. It's just kind of a cruise control day. I didn't really think about Jesus much. Didn't really pray much. Didn't really think about how I could be salt and light to other people. Just kind of did my thing. Jesus says, you're against me living that way. Whoa. When you are choosing how to live, be honest. The first strategy here that we see is practice bracing honesty. Joshua just lays it out for them. If you're not choosing God, you're you're serving other gods. You're worshiping other gods. When you're choosing how to live, Be honest with your spouse, with your sister, with your brother in Christ. You're choosing other gods if you're not choosing Yahweh. Strategy one, stay salty. Be bracingly honest. Strategy number two is this. Set the example through a continuous choice. Joshua says here briefly, this famous verse 15. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So he lays out these choices he can make. He says, but as for us, we will serve the Lord. Set the example through a continuous choice. Joshua sets a determined example through his choice. He's saying, okay, here are these options. And I recognize there are these options in this culture, in this world that you live. Here's what I have been doing and I'm going to do. What's interesting about the English translation here is it's a future sense. I will choose the Lord. But the Hebrew tense in the imperfect has a fuller sense of expressing this continuous choice. This continuous choice. In other words, I have chosen this. Looks to the past. But I will continue to choose this. Serving God. Joshua chose Yahweh. right? You remember, he was a general against the Amalekites fighting for God. When he witnessed all his friends going after a golden calf, He made his choice. When a vast majority of other guys in the spy agency recommended standing down from going into the New Promised Land, Joshua made a choice. Joshua chose, Joshua chose, Joshua chose, and he kept right on choosing. So his choice here at 110 years old is rooted in a series of hard choices. It's not like this sprung out of nowhere. He lived a life of making choices for God which made it so much more free and full of joy to choose them again. Understand that every day when you wake up, especially living in a place of blessing and wealth and all of this, you tend toward sin and self-indulgence. You tend toward self and self-indulgence. That's the starting line when you wake up in the morning. Right? I still haven't met the person when their alarm goes off, they shout Hallelujah. Rather, I talk to people who groan and grunt when their alarm <laughs> goes, all right, Bleh. That groaning, that grunting, I don't want to take this too far, but I, I don't think it's too much to say that it's evidence, as Paul says, of all of creation groaning, waiting for Jesus to return so there's no more sin in the world. That's where we start every day. Evidence that we start with sin, self-indulgence, what's going to help me, it's going to be pushing my snooze button. And we will keep heading in that direction. We tend towards that direction. We tend to choose the path of least resistance as the day goes on. We tend to choose what benefits us at the expense of others as the day goes on. If you don't choose something else, we're just going to tend down that path. Each day you must choose Jesus. Choose the cross. Choose to trust his ways because of what he has done. It's a continuous choice. Let's keep reading. Verses 16-21. through The people answered, Well, wait a minute. Far be it from us, Joshua, that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Right? They're offended by this. No, 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 no. For it is the Lord we're going to serve who brought us out of Egypt and our fathers and out of the house of slavery and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went. And among all the peoples for whom... We passed. They're very religious people, as you can tell. They're they're doing a great job getting through this. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord. He's our God. And here we see Joshua implement strategy three. Watch this. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. You know what? If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after he's done all this good for you. In other words, the idea is, you know, if that was to even happen, if you then decide, oh yeah, okay, we're not going to serve him anymore. Oh man, there's going to be trouble. But you see what he's done here? Strategy three is to share the good news with creativity and without apology. What Joshua has done just here is what we used to call in the biz, the walkaway. By the biz, I mean the furniture business, that's right. Uh, when I was pre-pastor, I paid my way through seminary as a furniture salesman. I just, someone just give a shout out for a furniture salesman? Woo, all right. <laughs> it was a thing of beauty, though, to watch veteran sellers, when I first got there, just, Showing people their f- the finest and bedding or living room furniture. And every once in a while, they would quickly move on saying, you know what, here's our best stuff. It's all cherry wood. It's... But it's probably not for you. And then they move on to the cheaper furniture. <laughs> and it was a thing of beauty because, all, you know, more than half the time, what do you think happened? People's sense of pride, their sense of determination, rose up to the challenge. No, 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 wait a minute, I want to hear more about the good stuff. No, you had zero percent financing. We could do this, right? I worked pre-2008, clearly. Likewise, Joshua, I love it. He 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 almost risks something here a little bit. He he gets creative, saying, "Hey, honestly, God's awesome. He's great. It's almost, but he's probably not for you. You really probably can't. You probably can't do it, right? What a cool thing to risk something sometime like that. Honestly, man." If you've seen something different in my life, I love my life. God has been good. You know, I tell you the secret, but I don't, know if, I don't know if you're really ready for it. What if we tried something like that? I mean, first of all, sharing the good news keeps you believing, breathing in, living out the good news. And the encouragement here in Joshua is not only to share it, but pray how to best share it creatively with real people in real situations. A friend of mine once described the goal in sharing the good news that Jesus has come to rescue people is to sort of leave a pebble behind in their shoe, right? You, you, you want to almost have them walking away with a little pebble in their shoe. And you know that, you know that feeling? Gives you that limp and you just know it's there. and Something they can't get off their heart and mind, an idea, a creative thought that you place there that might lead them to see their need for Jesus. Something that bothers them in a good way until they find their solution. Share creatively, but also share the hard stuff without apology, right? Joshua shares the hard stuff. He is a jealous God. He demands all your allegiance. Jesus simply demands complete allegiance to him. If you trust him, he wants your whole life. And also, he doesn't just remove all your problems. Share that stuff with people, too. One of my favorite men in history is Ernest Shackleton. Have you heard of this guy before? Uh, He's an Antarctic explorer of the early 1900s, British guy. uh, His voyage and adventure, first upon his ship, the Endurance, was made famous, And, and, and then he led his men out of a ship that was trapped in ice, and then by foot, with few provisions, across a continent of ice. Ernest Shackleton. This was in the early 1900s, right? You would think recruiting men to go to a giant block of ice wouldn't be a difficult sell. A perilous journey was going to culminate in walking across a land of ice. But here's how Shackleton advertised it. Here's what he said. He's just honest, even sharing the hard stuff. The expedition will not be a peaceful cruise to the South Sea Islands, but a most dangerous, difficult, and strenuous work that has nearly always involved a certain percentage of loss of life. Raise your hand if you'd sign up for that. One person in the back, that's great. 5,000 people applied to go on this journey. 5,000 people. He chose 27. 5,000 men signed up. People want to hear that their lives are worth living for something greater. They're worth living for sacrifice. They're worth living for something beyond themselves. Don't be afraid then to be honest about Jesus' demands and his great worth. All right, last strategy, verses twenty through 28. We're going to see it here. Joshua said to the people, your witnesses then, if you're going to say yes to God, your witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. It's kind of, they're like, amen, brother, right? We're witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God, We will serve. His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. He put in place statues and rules for them at Shechem, just basically reinstituting, re-reminding them of the law of God. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord, that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you that you, lest you deal falsely with your your God. So Joshua sent his people away, every man to his inheritance. Everyone home from the worship service with that last thought. And this was strategy four. Establish reminders of your I do. Establish reminders of your I do. This, This stone that he's talking about here, it's the seventh memorial to the Lord in the book of Joshua. It's the seventh grouping of stones in some way to remind God's people of their commitment to him, their I do's, their I do to God. You know, over time, society at large has instituted a number of reminders of wedding vows. There are things like rings, right, anniversaries, certain gifts for anniversaries, right, to commemorate things like, there are things like paper you get on some anniversary, aluminum, for other anniversaries, there are ways you commemorate your I do's to your bride or to your groom. Katie and I have framed a marriage covenant that persons at our wedding signed to commit to pray for us. And that was pretty cool. Unfortunately, someone signed Bill Cosby on there, which, like, thanks a lot, you know. Pretty full of the people. Sorry, that's awful. <laughs> All right, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, off the, I'm off the hook this morning. All right. But it's a reminder to us of our I do. Consider establishing reminders of your I do's to Jesus. And there are all kinds of ideas to do this. All kinds of creative ways to remind you of your I do, your commitment you've made to Jesus. And thankfully the Bible gives us explicitly two of them. Baptism is one of them. The the, the visible moment, the act, the celebration, and ultimately a reminder of our commitment to die with Jesus, to to die to our former way of living, and to be raised to life with him. And not just your own, but other people's as well. When you you go and you celebrate that with others. We celebrated one a few weeks ago. What What a reminder that God has raised us to new life. Another one's the Lord's Supper. A regular ongoing reminder of receiving Jesus, saving death on our behalf. A reminder that we're choosing Again, Jesus' way, his death, and its effect for us. We're going to celebrate that later this morning. A commitment that we're totally dependent on him. Four strategies. What's, what's so fascinating about these strategies to, to stay salty are that they're totally outside the box. Totally outside of what we would choose. We would choose to stay salty and committed and persevering for jesus we would we would cut back on another activity right to serve god more in his activity we we would try to get balance in our life or we would try to find our niche and how we're supposed to serve joshua goes outside the says, just just get honest with people be really honest like when you're not serving god you're serving false gods you're working against Jesus. He says, "Look, uh, be creative and be in prayer. Be thoughtful about sharing the good news with others because sharing the good news, sharing and reminding people about their need for the Lord helps you remind yourself of the need for the Lord. Building in reminders of your commitment, right? Don't think you can just keep living this life without reminders of your need for Him. I love it. Awesome little strategies. Now, lastly, here: Who stays salty? After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance, at Timmaserah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work the Lord did for Joshua. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of, uh, of money. It became an inheritance of the sins of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phineas his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. We notice first the end of faithful examples, the death and burial of Joshua, the burial of patriarch Joseph, and the death of Eleazar, who was the priestly equivalent of Joshua. He was appointed by Moses to succeed Aaron as a priest. He was the son of Aaron. You'll note secondly that this generation stays faithful to Yahweh, living salty lives. But it's inescapable, the hint the subtle implication that the next generation will not stay salty. Right? Verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known the work the Lord did. The implication there is that might not be the case and in fact won't be for the next generation. And that leads us here to the truth that we cannot, friends, dictate the spiritual destiny of future generations. We can provide an example, we can share good news with creativity, etc., but we can't determine the spiritual vitality and direction of the future. That's up to God. So I want to encourage you lastly here, friends, do not give in to the someone else syndrome. When it comes to living a salty life for God, there's a subtle idea that, you know, if I don't lead by example, if I don't practice bracing honesty, if I don't share this good news that Jesus relayed to me, someone else will. How easily Generation Next could have thought similarly. Someone else will do this. We can't rely on others, even future generations, to do likewise. There's no guarantee for that. I think this is a temptation, especially for those of us who are parents. Yes, you love your kids, you invest in them. And if you're like me, you pray that they love Jesus more passionately, more faithfully than I do. But do not invest in their future at the expense of your calling to live salty lives now. Some time ago, it came across personal account of a German Christian man living during World War II. Here's what he said. I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I consider myself a Christian. We heard stories of what was happening to the Jews, but we tried to distance ourselves from it because what could anyone else do to stop it? And if any human being could, it would be someone else, not me. A railroad track ran behind our small church. Each Sunday morning, we could hear the whistle in the distance and then the wheels coming over the tracks. We became disturbed when we heard the cries coming from the train as it passed by. We realized that it was carrying Jews like cattle in the cars. Week after week, the whistle would blow. and We dreaded to hear the sound of those wheels because we knew we would hear the cries of the Jews en route to a death camp. And their screams tormented us. We knew that the train, the time the train was coming, when we heard the whistle blow, we began singing hymns. By the time the train came past our church, we were singing at the top of our voices because when we heard the screams, we sang more loudly, and soon we drowned them out to hear them no more. Years have passed, and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. God, forgive me. Forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians yet did nothing. Relying always on someone else to intervene. What we realize here at the close of the book of Joshua is that there is no generation next. There is only a generation now. Friends, we are called to live salty lives before a generation, passing before our eyes, not in torment to internment camps, but ultimately to the same destination of death. We cannot pass the buck to someone else. You may be young, you may be inexperienced, you may possess faith the size of a mustard seed, but you are not the church of the future. We are the church of the now. Let's live like it and pray. Father, what a cool exhortation at the end of his life. It's hard and strong, Lord. Joshua does not go gently into that good night, but he reminds his people why and how they should stay salty. Giving them one last exhortation and then a remembrance, Lord, that we can't guarantee tomorrow. We can't just assume that, you know, if, if, if I don't live a salty, flavorful life that leaves people wanting more, I'm sure someone else will do it. I'm sure some other church will do it. I'm sure my children or these young people will do it. We're reminded that there is really no guarantee for a generation next. But we are the generation now. Lord, help us fight to live salty lives. In Jesus' name, amen.